This episode is sponsored by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. Get it for free in the App Store. This is the second of a two-part episode. In part one, we took a look at werewolves in different cultures from antiquity up through the witch trials of the 16th century. In this part, we'll continue that history through modern day and also discuss scientific explanations through the years, including medical and psychological. And we'll explore the less frequently discussed socioeconomic factors which contributed to the lore of the werewolf and helped shape some of the mythology of the creature. We'll also hear more from folklorist and editor-in-chief of the UK magazine The Skeptic, Deborah Hyde. Here's part two of Werewolves. In Breton, Bisclaveret's the name. Garwolf in Norman means the same. Long ago you heard the tale told, and it used to happen in days of old. Quite a few men became garwolves and set up housekeeping in the woods. A garwolf is a savage beast, while the fury's on it, at least. Eats men, wreaks evil, does no good, living and roaming in the deep wood. Now I'll leave this topic set. I want to tell you about Bisclaveret. We'll take a pause in the timeline to remember Marie de France's late 12th century poem, Bisclaveret. It's interesting to point out these opening lines describing men becoming feral beasts and wreaking havoc, while the rest of the poem tells the tale of a knight, his adulterous wife, and his revenge. The knight disappears for three days a month, and eventually his wife demands to know what he's up to. He finally tells her he takes his clothes off near an old church and turns into a wolf in order to go hunting. When finished, he goes back to his clothes, puts them on, and turns back into a man. The wife, appalled, tells another knight, who is smitten with her, to take her husband's clothes the next time he leaves, and he does so. The original knight is thus unable to turn back into a man, and the wife soon marries the new knight. OG Knight, now a wolf, is found by the king while hunting one day, and before the king's men can kill him, he licks the king's boots submissively. The king sees intelligence and spares the night wolf, who returns as a pet and lives comfortably at the king's court. One day, the king has a great feast, and the wife and her new husband attend. The knight wolf attacks the usurping knight, and the king calls him off. Later, the king goes riding and has the knight wolf with him when they come across a house near the woods, which happens to be the wolf's old house. His wife gets all gussied up for the king, but the wolf attacks her straight away and bites her nose off. The king's advisor deduces that because the wolf had only shown aggression to her and her new husband, it must be for a reason. So the king imprisons the wife until she confesses about the whole ordeal and returns the night wolf's clothes. He puts them on and changes back into a man. The king gives him land and gifts and expels the wife and the other knight who go on to have many children born without noses. Now that's got some fun elements to the story, including something we've heard before, the transformation being tied to clothing but it also has the somewhat unique component of the wolf being good and living amongst people, only showing aggression when seeing his dirty, cheating wife. This is a far cry from the characterization of werewolfism through the witch trials of the 16th and 17th centuries, and quite the opposite of a case from the later 1700s, a terrifying and, by most accounts, real series of attacks and deaths in France, thought to be caused by a small group of, or just one massive and bloodthirsty creature, the Beast of Gévaudan.
Quick correction, at the end of part one, I said it was from the 17th century. I meant the 18th century or the 1700s. That's my bad. Now, the Beast of Jevudan has been covered on this show before. In fact, he was the winner of the 2015 Miss Cryptid contest. We went into detail on Le Bet in week two, but I'll give you a refresher as it leads to some stuff we didn't get to in part one. Between 1764 and 1767, a large swath of south-central France was absolutely terrorized by a strange fiend which preyed on mostly women and children, though it seemed no one was safe from its dreadful jaws. Limbs were torn asunder, throats torn out from victims, and it's estimated 113 people lost their lives in some 210 attacks across the French countryside. It was, and is, generally assumed that this was the work of some kind of creature, not a gruesome serial killer as had been before. As attacks happened in what was the county of Gévaudan at the time, it was dubbed, simply, La Bête du Gévaudan, the Beast of Gévaudan. And as reports of attacks began in 1764 and increased in frequency, so too did the Beast's infamy. Illustrations of the attacks began appearing in papers and posters and captivated the populace. One poster described it thusly, Red is brown with dark ridge strapped down the back. Resembles wolf, hyena, but big as a donkey. Long, gaping jaw, six claws, pointy upright ears and supple furry tail. Mobile, like a cat, and can knock you over. Cry, more like horse neighing than wolf howling. Another said it was capable of popping human skulls with one bite, was long as a leopard, and could walk on its hind legs. Not to mention being bulletproof. Speculation ran rampant on what it was. Huge wolf, escaped lion or hyena, shape-shifting witch, even, the reason for the season, a werewolf. We still don't know what it was, possibly a hybrid with a mastiff or hyena, or just a juvenile lion. Hunting parties searched high and low, and it was claimed the beast had been killed several times, yet the attacks continued. Even King Louis XV got involved, sending his quote-unquote best hunters out after it. Though they managed to fell a remarkably large gray wolf, somewhere around 130 pounds or 60 kilograms, and everyone celebrated, and the king graciously announced, Mission accomplished! The attacks did not stop. The aid from the royal court stopped, but Jevoudan continued to be harassed. It wasn't until 1767 that a local hunter apparently took down the hellion, and his method spawned a whole new chapter in werewolf lore from then on. A local farmer and hunter named Jean Chastel had helped the king's hunters track and kill that massive wolf, but after it was clear that was not the beast, he was called on to hunt again. As the story goes from printed accounts at the time, Chastel cast a bullet and buckshot from silver, found the beast, and with a single shot, he put it down. It's not known why he would have made a bullet from silver. Some accounts said the silver was from a melted crucifix, and that's why it stopped such a fiend from hail. But whatever the reason, the silver aspect of the accounts stuck, more so than the religious aspects. Regular bullets couldn't do the trick, but one silver bullet stopped the terror cold. This was one of the, if not the, earliest accounts of silver being used against werewolves. And not many followed. One notable case was from the 19th century when two giant black dogs began to come to an inn in Devonshire, England, where they would avail themselves of the inn's stores of cider. Finally, the innkeeper had enough of the apple-happy hounds and fired a silver bullet over their heads. The two black dogs immediately transformed into two old crones who lived in the area. 
Of course, there's not much to substantiate the tale, including names or businesses, and it also sounds pretty witchy, but Silver is there. I'll circle back to Silver in a bit, but for now, let's bid adieu to the fields of France to journey to the New World, from the wilds of Canada down the Mississippi to Louisiana. French settlers and fur trappers came to America to make their living, and they brought with them tales of the Lugaru. It's interesting how those tales evolved once they arrived. There's a bit to be said about the northern part of North America and tales of the Wendigo, as covered in episode 135. It's not a werewolf per se, but aspects of monstrous features and cannibalism abound and it's not hard to hear similarities with werewolves, though there's no explicit indication of influence from French lore. You get the exact opposite with Lugaru stories, popular in French-Canadian lore, and even more popular down south, as the swamps and woods of southern Louisiana are chock full of stories directly derived from the Lugaru, or, as it is known in Cajun legends, the Rougarou. Stories tell of a large humanoid with the head of a wolf that terrorizes misbehaving children and Catholics who don't properly observe Lent. Witches can turn themselves or others into Rougarous, or if you break Lent seven years in a row, you're in for a Rougarakening. And you're welcome. Dogmen are more prevalent in American folklore these days, as werewolves have been largely relegated to horror fiction. Werewolf of London was a 1935 film by Universal Pictures, which brought the concept of werewolfism being transferred through injury and a connection to moonlight to the silver screen. And Universal followed it up with the now-classic The Wolfman, which kept the theme of transformation after injury, but dropped the connection to moonlight. It added a connection to silver and the plant Wolfsbane. However, even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bang moves and the autumn moon is bright. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bang blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Even a man who is pure in heart and says his prayers by night may become a wolf when the wolf bang blooms and the autumn moon is And Hollywood's capitalization of the creature continues to this day, with notable films such as An American Werewolf in London, The Howling, Wolf, Van Helsing, and the Underworld series, etc. I guess you could throw Teen Wolf in there as well. These have had an interesting effect on the lore, as most of the general knowledge about werewolves have been shaped by the conventions used in these films. Do I have an explicit source or example for that statement? No. (laughs) But I challenge you to find a handful of people who don't relate the moon, silver, a disease-like curse, and wild transformations to werewolves. And again, I'm speaking from American experience. Or maybe I should say Western experience. I'm sure others have slightly too wholly different views, which brings to mind an old tale that a German listener once shared with us of the Boxenwolf. It's an interesting tale from around the Schomburg region of Germany that includes a belt from the devil that a person can use to change into a wolf and then demand that travelers carry him across a bridge and then rob them, at least in most versions of the story. I've mentioned it and teased it, but so far we haven't heard much moon stuff in the lore. Where does the moon fit in with werewolves? Our modern understanding is pretty closely interwoven with full moons being the catalyst for transformation, but so far we've had belts, pelts, and salves doing the trick. Folklorist Deborah Hyde sheds some moonlight on the question. The moon probably became attached to werewolf lore in classical times when lycanthropy was uh, the term used for um, a psychological illness, mania or depression or something like that. And it was thought to be due to an imbalance of your four humours, which was their mechanism for, for bodily health and for the way bodies worked. And in those cases, they would think that um, people's mania varied according to the moon. Um, and given that the moon 
does cause changes in tides and that kind of thing, we really did need some modern intellectual equipment and observations to see that the moon doesn't cause any changes in people's psychology. During medieval times when they were still, and, and early modern times as well, when they were still using the humoral theory for medicine, then they would invoke the moon, phases of the moon uh, as affecting people's health. So that's using lycanthropy in a different sense where you're talking about basically, I suppose, the, the, a wolf type spirit or an illness which uh, resembled being a wolf. So there was mania, agitation, anger, uh, as well as um, being dissociated, um, then they would call that lycanthropy. But they did actually, they were using it as a medical diagnosis. They didn't think that people actually changed into wolves. It was just a, an allegorical title. So the tidal effects of the moon pulling on the body's humors with ill effect goes all the way back to ancient Greece. Couple that with the Greek epic Dionysiaca by Nonus which invokes the goddess of the moon, Selene, or Luna in Roman mythology, for lunacy, causing a character to be moonstruck or maddened, and you have a bit of a basis for the moon's tie to affecting change in behavior. Superstitions about the moon no doubt crept into werewolf lore, as they are many and varied, and almost every culture has some. Staring at the moon is said to send you into fits of insanity every full moon thereafter, Sleeping in moonlight was said to attract monsters. It's unlucky to point at the moon. A child born under a new moon, when it's not visible at night, will amount to nothing in life. And the list goes on. You may have heard about studies regarding the correlation between full moons and crime. Both police stations and hospitals are said to see upticks in activity when the moon is full. But it seems like the strongest origins of the moon's role come from screenwriter Kurt Seodmik, who wrote 1941's The Wolfman. The clips I played earlier were his words, with the last line, And the autumn moon is bright, being changed in sequels to, And the moon is full and bright. So for all our folklore intents and purposes, the moon and werewolves are Hollywood magic. Lore on stopping or killing a werewolf was also helped by Hollywood, but there was still plenty to draw on from old accounts, and the ways to identify one, put one down, or break the curse were varied. There have been several ways put forward to identify a werewolf, hopefully while in human form. If you identify one while in wolf form, you can probably identify the spot you'll die as well. My goodness, that chap seems a frightful wolf man. Cheerio, world. Chomp. A potential werewolf might have the following characteristics. A unibrow. Curved fingernails. Low-set ears. Urinating at night frequently. Refusing medical help. Heavy paranoia. Hair under the tongue or inside the skin. Hair on the palms. A scar or birthmark shaped like a pentagram, which is another Seodmic invention. And the index and middle fingers are the same length. That's right, you look at those fingers, you saucy potential wolf person. Don't try and stretch that index finger out. It's a curse. It is a curse. The cheek. But probably the best way to discern a werewolf is actually one of the oldest methods used in tales and lore throughout the ages, which Deborah speaks about. There are some really interesting themes. For example, there's sympathetic wounding and metamorphosis. So the idea is, and this this is the reveal, the denouement in so many werewolf stories, that you would injure this savage animal and it would um, have some kind of peculiar characteristic, like it would have human eyes or just three legs or a stumpy tail. So something little bit off about it. You could tell it wasn't a normal animal and then you would injure it and you would track it back to wherever it had come from and then you would find a human being with exactly the same injury on it. So that was your proof that you had you had injured something that changed from an animal into a person. That That happens time and time again. How many stories have you heard where an offending fiend gets a paw shot off or wounded somehow 
and gets away only to have the shooter find someone they know nursing the same wound later. She's right, it is the climax of countless tales across many cultures. Any other advice for avoiding a werewolf in these tales? Well, think I think probably uh, don't leave a seven-year-old in charge of your herd, um, especially, <laughs> especially when they're at the edge of the herd next to the forest. That's definitely a big way of avoiding a werewolf. And, and other ways, I mean, it's, it's just there's not a lot you can do, really. It's like vampires where you can throw millets or poppy seeds or anything like that. I mean, this is a creature of the devil and uh, it's coming at you, whatever you do. So stay out of its way. Or you can just try and find the relevant people and then get them while they're in the human form. Take away their belt so they can't change back into a werewolf again. Wolfsbane, rye and mistletoe are also said to stave off werewolves, mostly for the smell or taste. But don't mess around with wolfsbane or aconite, aka monk's hood, devil's helmet, blue rocket, etc. That stuff is extremely poisonous, and it doesn't take much exposure to the stems and roots to cause a host of maladies and eventually death from paralysis of the heart. So yeah, that could ward off a lot of stuff. Don't drink rainwater from a wolf's footprint. That'll keep you from turning into one yourself. Staying in after sunset could be added to the list, I guess, which harkens to another interesting bit of folklore. There are tales from around Germany and Poland involving the corpses of people who were very sinful in life, turning into wolves at night, not necessarily with the lunar cycle, but the night connection is there when they would feast on the living before turning back into corpses during the day which is a very fascinating mix of werewolf and vampire tropes, and no doubt led to extreme measures to get rid of bodies to prevent such occurrences. Now, we've heard about the potency of silver, which is by and large a modern addition to the lore, but how else do you kill a werewolf and dispose of the body? Well, destroying the heart or the brain in most lore is a pretty sure shot of stopping one for good. Beheading one works as well but best to also burn the body for safety. And burning in general, or another form of annihilating the body, will also do the trick. But what if you want to break the curse, save the person beneath the fur? Some folklore says the right mixture of wolfsbane and other herbs can be administered. Not something I would condone. Ancient cultures believed a suspected werewolf should perform constant physical activity to exhaust them so they don't have the energy to turn into a werewolf. I think parents continue that tradition. Exorcism has been put forth for the more devilishly originating werewolves. Striking a werewolf's scalp with a knife could cure it in some cultures, which is close to another idea of throwing a hunk of iron or silver over its head, which would change it back to human form, though maybe not cure it of the curse. As Deborah said, take away its pelt or belt if it needs those to transform. Maybe burn it to get rid of it for good. Or you could try an old German method of calling the werewolf by its Christian name three times to get it to change. The folklore is fun to explore, but throwing a walk over someone's head isn't exactly objective science. Have cultures in history sought to explain werewolfism in ways other than old wives' tales? Well, the answer is yes, of course. I'm setting up the next section. We don't have time for dead ends in this maze. We must realize that a man's nature will remain the same so long as he remains man, that civilization is but a slight coverlet beneath which the dominant beast sleeps lightly and ever ready to awake. To preserve civilization... We must deal scientifically with the brute element, using only genuine biological principles. H.P. Lovecraft So how much was belief in shape-shifting folklore, and how much was considered some kind of an illness? Not a question with a simple answer, but we do know the idea of illness has been around for a while. There were a lot of 
classical doctors, people like Virgil and people like that who mentioned these hallucinogenic selves. And they were fully aware that you could suffer from um, post-hallucinogen psychosis so that sometimes people would use these things recreationally and then end up with mental illness afterwards. Um, they generally used the, the humoral theory of health, so they felt that somebody's humours had, had become out of balance. Um, so in the in classical times, they would think they would use lycanthropy as a diagnosis, actually, of, of a dissociative kinds of illness. So they weren't educated people, weren't literally talking about changing into wolves. But there was also, there were amusing stories. There were myths um, that spoke about people moving, changing into animals as well. As Deborah said, the excess of humors or black bile concept can be dated to the 7th century CE and the physician Paulus Aigoneta, and some argue Aristotle before that. Lycanthropes were said to suffer from severe dryness of the body, but were dangerous neither to themselves nor others. The Lutheran physician Johann Weyer argued against the witch trials by saying the accused should not be persecuted for their mental illnesses, nor for contracting with the devil, as it would not be a legally binding contract through human agency. He mentioned in his 1563 De Prestigious Daemonum that werewolves had a certain imbalance in their melancholic humor, sort of like saying depression or similar mental condition causes werewolfism. This idea was continued by Scotland's King James VI, later James I of England, in the late 16th century and again by English scholar Robert Burton in 1621. Several examples of grave robbing and carrying body parts around the neck or over the shoulder were linked to lycanthropy in the 16th and 17th centuries. French occultist Jacques-Colin de Plancy wrote in his 1818 Dictionnaire Infernal, Every day, a large number of unfortunate hypochondriacs accused of lycanthropy were burned, and theologians complained because not enough of them were being destroyed. And later English priest and author Sabine Baring Goulds, 1865, the Book of Werewolves wrote, It was not till the close of the Middle Ages that lycanthropy was recognized as a disease, but it is one which has so much that is ghastly and revolting in its form, and it is so remote from all our ordinary experience, that it is not surprising that the casual observer should leave the consideration of it as a subject isolated and perplexing, and be disposed to regard as a myth that which the feared investigation might prove a reality. That book also references a few myths, such as salves from Wolfsbane and Belladonna. And it seemed that about half the time lycanthropy was considered folkloric or pertaining to the devil, and the other half as an illness or malady, especially of the mind. Lycanthropy and medical compendia began to disappear in the 19th century, as the field of mental health study and treatment became more robust. Since then, we sometimes see cases of clinical lycanthropy, where a person is diagnosed with a mental illness that causes them to believe they are a werewolf or can change into one, etc. In fact, according to Dr. Jan Blom at the University of Groningen in the Netherlands, some 56 cases of lycanthropy have been officially reported since the mid-19th century, with only 13 of them actually constituting clinical lycanthropy or the delusion of turning into a wolf. 56 since the 1800s, and only 13 of them confirmed. Other cases were either not wholly linked to werewolfism, or they were more therianthropy, which is shape-shifting into any old animal. Dr. Blom went on to say that lycanthropy is generally found to be the expression of a different prominent disorder, that being schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or severe depression. It's believed that changes in the brain corresponded to changes in perception of one's physical shape, which could include elongated teeth, burning under the skin, broadened chest, etc. An explanation you'll often hear for a real werewolf condition is hypertrichosis, 
a genetic condition which causes excessive hair growth all over the body, or in some cases localized to a certain area, like the head. You'll see pictures of those with this condition, and the hair grows all over the face and hands, etc. It absolutely falls in line with how a wolf-human hybrid could look, more human than wolf, of course, and could be a good explanation for mistaken werewolf identity. Except it's not, for one simple fact. Rarity. It's estimated that since the Middle Ages, there have only been about 50 medical cases described, with only 34 of those positively identified. 50 since the Middle Ages? Compare that to the untold number of accused werewolves burned at the stake, or worse, during the witch trials alone, and you'll quickly see that this is not the explanation droid you're looking for. What about drugs of some kind? Maybe folks hallucinated changing into a werewolf. It's been speculated, much the same way witches are thought to have flown on broomsticks, that certain herbal concoctions led to people hallucinating that they could fly or become a beast. Part of this is based on chemical analyses of recipes for some so-called salves and ointments, which revealed similar elements to LSD. And it's true, wolfsbane, belladonna, and certain plants which are highly toxic can produce hallucinogenic effects if small doses are carefully administered. The problem, again, is the number of purported cases of werewolves and witchcraft. I hate to presume, but it doesn't seem plausible to think everyone was mixing up a ton of fatal flowers for topical sunshine. A couple here and there, maybe, but I mean, you could probably say that with any of these examples. The most interesting thing about this to me so far is seeing how the condition and folklore has changed with our understanding of science, as well as other social factors. It's something I'll circle back to, but it got me wondering if there were any other medical conditions that could help to explain some of the cases over the years which were branded lycanthropy or straight-up werewolfism at the time. Are there certain diseases that could lead to these delusions or cause people to behave in animalistic ways. That leads to an oft-pointed-to rationalization of rabies as a possible culprit, and, to a lesser extent, another blast from the blurry photos past, ergotism. I asked Deborah about both. That's interesting because it contains the seeds of the idea of contagion, and werewolfism, it's been wondered if werewolf if the werewolf um, stories have something to do with rabies, that, that's way overstated. I mean, the, the two don't correspond too much. But it is an interesting theme, the idea of contagion. We had that in American Werewolf in London, for example, didn't we, where the, the man was attacked and became a werewolf himself. Ergotism is interesting in this context, but as somebody who has been reading about this stuff for a long time, I can assure you that perfectly sane people under no under the influence of no psychotropic drugs, can believe the weirdest stuff you ever heard of. We're capable of believing some really strange stuff because of social and psychological reasons. Um, and physical reasons, things like sleep paralysis, pay into this an awful lot as well. So the, the, the ergotism theory is, is nice and it might have caused a couple of peculiar experiences. But ergot poisoning comes with an awful lot of other things, including... Um, uh, body extremities getting necrotic and falling off, yeah. So if we heard about werewolves and your hands falling off at the same time, I think that would be a stronger case for believing in the role of ergot. An excellent point. When you look at an extraordinary topic critically, it's also important to look at the explanations and whether they make sense or not. Rabies has been recognized for over 4,000 years as people figured out pretty quickly to stay away from mad dogs. The point being, people could usually tell the difference between werewolf behavior and the symptoms of a bite from a rabid animal. In ergotism, it was not uncommon to have limbs become gangrenous and rot off the body. 
whatever other symptoms match with supposed werewolfism, rotting limbs does not. Now, it seems that, scientifically speaking, werewolves fall more in line with mental illness than the result of disease via consumption or contagion. But speaking of looking at explanations and thinking critically, let's take a look at some factors not often discussed when werewolves and the horrific trials in Europe are brought up. It's easy to dismiss cases like the ones I talked about earlier as historical weirdos or zealotry, but digging a little deeper, there's more to the stories than just folklore can explain. Wolves were everywhere. In politics, on thrones, in beds. They cut their teeth on history and grew fat on war. Roshni Chakshi, The Gilded Wolves Witchcraft law kind of came out of um, laws against heretics. So in the earlier trials, you would have people, aristocrats being tried because you would get usually Dominicans and the local powers that be, whoever they were, would gang up on people with money because they could share the money when these people were found guilty. Um, you, you would just take somebody's assets. But of course, as you were getting richer and richer people, first of all, there was a, a lot more powerful kickback against the situation. And second of all, um, you they were kind of running out of people with money. It was very difficult to incentivize the local law-keeping forces. And certainly by the 16th and 17th centuries, you're talking about a situation where really it was poor people. In England, you had the post-Reformation era where social security was in a peculiar place because before the church had taken care of people who were most desperate and the most poor. But capital was being centralised. There were enclosures of land and the state hadn't really taken over care of the poor yet. So really the poor were a burden on their own communities. And then in Europe, you had the wars of religion, including the Thirty Years' War, which is one of the most savage wars that's ever been prosecuted, really, 1618 to 1648. And so under those circumstances, you have the perfect situation for paranoia and the need for scapegoating. There could be disease, destruction, um, random changes of fortune, epidemic death. These are the social situations which cause people to fall back on victim-blaming behaviour. And people can be quite remarkably unpleasant, quite quickly, when things get bad. We focus on the European witchcraft trials of the 16th and 17th centuries, as that was the height of many stories of werewolfism, and we had some solidification of the lore at that time. We often hear the stories from about the middle part of their action, with fuzzy setups including kids going missing, livestock mutilated, or shifty activity from a member of the community. But how well can we trust those stories, and especially those reasons, in light of what comes after the accused is caught? Deborah mentioned motives that were more in line with greed than with fulfilling a moral duty. Many trials helped gain power for some folks, as aristocrats fell victim to accusations, and accusers quickly filled the vacuum left when their positions were taken away. But soon enough, they ran out of rich folks, or the rich got wise, and the fickle finger pointed at the poor and marginalized. Those who lived on the fringes of society, those who didn't fit in, those who found it hard to live in the grip of capricious oligarchs and theocrats, and those who probably suffered from a degree of mental illness, were targeted. They became scapegoats for people in power to advance their own agendas, making examples of those society already kept wary eyes on. Compound that with the tumultuous and bloody religious wars going on in the Reformation, and you've got a tough time to live already, regardless of werewolfism. Crops failed this year? Blame it on the woman living alone in the woods for cursing it. Religion changed with a new ruling class? Blame the beggars on the street for following the other religion to scare others to convert. Economy and town poor? Blame the hermit in the woods for working with the devil. Then witchcraft and werewolfism become weapons which were wielded to secure and maintain power. 
and the poor, by definition, had no means to defend themselves against such targeting. And if we consider what I previously said about context surrounding some of these stories, they begin to look different in light of that context. Take the case of Peter Stump, the werewolf of Bedburg I mentioned in part one. Historians have pointed out that his trial happened during a very tumultuous period in Bedburg's history, as Protestantism had tried to be introduced to replace Roman Catholicism, with the result being literal warfare. Stump is thought to have converted to Protestantism during this time, but when the Protestants were defeated and the Roman Catholicism restored, Stump possibly became a victim of the new regime's plan to scare Protestants back to Roman Catholicism. Researchers have pointed to the fact that Stump may or may not have been guilty of some kind of crime, but the circumstances of his trial are remarkable for the fact that it was a singular event, it was highly advertised, and several members of the aristocracy attended, none of which is consistent with a run-of-the-mill werewolf or witch trial at the time. It's led some folks to believe Stump was made an example of what might happen if others did not fall in line with the beliefs of the new administration. There was a certain snowballing effect with these trials as the zealotry spread across Europe, helped in large part by technology of the time. You can't read any documents from that time without this being in the background. People would talk about things like werewolves and witches as a form of propaganda from one side or the other. The Protestants, this is such a broad stroke explanation of it, but the Protestants would say that the time of miracles was over and that if you believed in anything like fairies or vampires or uh, werewolves, you were you were just dumb or you were um, deceived by Satan. Whereas um, Catholics tended to believe that miracles did happen and that, opera- that Satan was operating in the world. So there were all kinds of nitpicky arguments that wouldn't make any sense to us at all, but were really, really important to people at that time. And after the Renaissance as well, there was this humanist pressure for academic freedom. You were changing away from a scholastic form of interpreting the world to a more, it was the, it was the beginning of science and um, the experimental approach to a world which we've ended up with where, you know, aristocrats don't rule because they're just aristocrats and they're right. Hopefully we've got to the point where you've got experts and they rule because they know what they're doing or they have a method that reveals the truth. It isn't God that's doing a top-down kind of formation of power in the world. Uh, we, We can learn, we can know, you can acquire power by behaving in a certain way, by thinking in a certain way. Uh, There was a humanist emphasis on individuality. That started to change things an awful lot. And one of the biggest changes that that came before pre-Reformation, really, was that um, Gutenberg's printing press happened in the 15th century. So there was an awful lot of information that was all over the place. But as well as being, as well as promoting free thinking and um, post-Renaissance forms of thinking, obviously printing presses could be used for printing witch-hunting manuals. So you get an awful lot of all sorts of thought flying around in a far more easy way than it had been. You you know, you could distribute your information far more easily than you could before. I think it's very interesting because people panic about the internet um, now. I suppose the internet is the most recent, well, actually TV, I, I guess, first, was another way of distributing your information in an unprecedented way. And of course, we find out that it doesn't mean that you get gold standard information coming out. It just means that anybody can get to their end user. And uh, so there is a little bit of a process at the beginning where you sort your wheat out from your chaff. Had the printing press not been invented, the snowballing of the burning times might not have been so bad. The Malleus Maleficarum, Heinrich Kramer's Hammer of Witches, played a role in the spread of draconian ideas for dealing with supposed witches and those in league with the Devil. Though there are a couple important points to consider. Firstly, the book itself had this to say about werewolves. There is incidentally a question concerning wolves, which sometimes snatch men and children out of their houses and eat them, and run about with such astuteness that by no skill or strength can they be hurt or captured. 
It is to be said that this sometimes has a natural cause, but is sometimes due to a glamour when it is affected by witches. As to the question whether they are true wolves or devils appearing in that shape, we say that they are true wolves, but are possessed by devils. But in another way, it may be an illusion caused by witches. For William of Paris tells of a certain man who thought that he was turned into a wolf and at certain times went hiding among the caves. For there he went at a certain time, and though he remained there all the time stationary, he believed that he was a wolf which went about devouring children. And though the devil, having possessed a wolf, was really doing this, he erroneously thought that he was prowling about in his sleep. And he was for so long thus out of his senses that he was at last found lying in the wood, raving. The devil delights in such things, and caused the illusion of the pagans who believed that men and old women were changed into beasts. From this it is seen that such things only happen by the permission of God alone, and through the operation of devils, and not through any natural defect, since by no art or strength can such wolves be injured or captured. Interestingly, though it was reprinted and its ideas spread across Europe in the late 15th century, most inquisitions and church officials rejected its teachings and denied any authority attributed to it. Secular courts, however, were more than happy to accept its blueprints for handling hags and dealing with demons. And that's when you get the sadly ironic persecution of those accused of dancing with the devil, which Deborah mentioned in part one. To manage evil, society employed torture and gruesome execution. Of course, there were those who truly believed they were doing their part to expunge the world of malevolence. But the ultimate point to take away here is that those orchestrating such behavior may have had ulterior motives that included scapegoating to further their own political, social, religious, or financial ends. If all the beasts were gone, men would die of a great loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts soon happens to man. All things are connected. Ted Perry, attributed to Chief Seattle in the made-for-TV movie Home. Wolves are powerful, intelligent, fierce, and to be respected. It makes sense for them to be the model for losing one's humanity and becoming something to be feared in so many cultures. The thing that doesn't make sense so much is matching the behavior of a werewolf with the behavior of real wolves. Real wolves don't target women and children in small communities and serially kill inhabitants. Only in the direst of circumstances do they mess with humans unprovoked and are naturally wary of us. Which makes me think they were paying close attention to these witchcraft trials. This topic was interesting to explore since, like I said in the beginning, I had that understanding of werewolves, which, come to find out, was based entirely on Hollywood's portrayal. Juicy storytelling took over the folklore, though it still cherry-picked some of that lore to use. The evolution of werewolf lore has been fascinating to consider in hindsight, as it has changed with our understanding of science, culture, and medicine. Consider the relative sparseness of werewolf tales from England. Did they not have incidents of people going missing or attacks throughout history? Did they succeed in rooting out their witch problem and give the devil the boot back to the mainland? Or was it a combination of habitat removal, hunting, and orders to exterminate wolves made by early monarchs? By the 15th century, wolf populations were severely diminished in England and hung on by a thread in Scotland, at least until the 18th century. Without this tangible physical threat, whether real or perceived, 
stories of werewolves faded in the culture. And the same can be said for pretty much all cultures. The spread of humanity and industrialization played a huge role in the evolution of werewolf tales. In a paper on werewolves, physicians, and rationalization, medical historian Dr. Nadine Metzger writes, Once the concrete threat posed by wolves to the basics of human life had vanished in most parts of Europe due to the industrialization and population growth, the image of the wolf was both transformed and lost its meaning in the arena of public discourse. The medical phenomenon was thus incorporated into the new functionally oriented categories of psychosis and schizophrenia. Another facet of the research that I found interesting was the connection to serial killers and cannibals. So many cases revolving around people going missing and butchered bodies being found are attached to werewolfism. And in fact, the term has often been attached to murderers and cannibals over the years, all the way back to Lycaon and the myths. But see also Manuel Romasanta, Albert Fish, Mikhail Popkov, etc. Murder, and especially cannibalism, are savage behavior. They are products of the breakdown of society via the breakdown of morality. Postgrad researcher Tanika Kuzman put it well in an article on werewolves and cannibalism, saying, The consumption of flesh creates a paradox of sorts questioning how humans can occupy a space within the framework of society if they are unable to differentiate other humans in their natural hierarchy. In Lycaon's case, his absent moral compass has allowed him to ignore the limitations we set on the world around us. People are not people if they can be food. Paradoxes are inherently unnerving in a way, because something is supposed to be one way, but it's the other. And what the hell else do we have if not learned behavior from pattern recognition and therefore some sense of control? Losing ourselves and becoming at best uncivilized, at worst dangerous and driven to fulfill base desires, is a pretty chilling thought. After reading about this stuff, I have to wonder if the werewolf, as a concept, is more an inadvertent scapegoat for such behavior through history, a vessel which served to try and rationalize irrational action, and then took a turn from folkloric proxy to horror icon. I mean, I haven't even mentioned much of literature, and not to be remiss, the influence of gothic horror stories in the 19th century had a profound impact on the lore and subsequent Hollywood creations. Hughes the werewolf, Wagner the werewolf, the wolf leader, even strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, all promoted the very stylized and flashy characterization of the werewolf to the public, even into the 20th century with tales by Algernon Blackwood, that one poem I read by Robert E. Howard, and Guy Indoor's The Werewolf of Paris, all of which has contributed to a rich but decidedly modern creature of horror fiction. Which is not a bad thing. For Shiggles, I asked Deborah what her favorite werewolf transformation and or film is. Oh, <laughs> um, well, the transformation sequence in American Werewolf in London is an absolute classic and it's just so amazing. And of course, it, it just took all of our attentions at the time. It was just a stunning thing to see. Uh, there are so many werewolf movies I like. I would say that my most favourite has got to be Brotherhood of the Wolf, just because it is such a classy movie in every way. I agree with her. That transformation is awesome. Brotherhood of the Wolf is awesome. A lot of fun stuff has come out of an ancient creature concept. Werewolves have come to mean different things to different people throughout history. Some kind of transformation to bestial tendency has always been present, however, whether by belt, ointment, curse, or mental condition. And in most cases, this is to show what happens when order crumbles and unnatural behavior is loosed, at least for humans. It's a concept of morality. It shows us what is sometimes hard to come to terms with, just like any good myth. 
it's a struggle within us all. Maybe that humanity has the capacity for such savage behavior means, in a way, we're all cursed already. And we all must steal ourselves, or rather, silver ourselves, to keep those urges at bay. And maybe, maybe, it gives us some insight into that little twinge, that fascination, that desire to look a bit longer when staring up at a bright, full moon. That's werewolves in a hairy, belt-wearing, barrel nutshell. In truth, two parts is too short to go over all the aspects of werewolfery. I'd bet you could literally make a podcast all about werewolves, cases, pop culture, etc., because there's just so much to talk about. There were plenty of cases and examples I didn't get to, but I wanted to give you guys a decent delve into it while still keeping the information moving. And speaking of moving, you better start running, because the clouds are parting, and I don't think the chains can hold these vicious puns. Hank Snow was not only a country music singer, but a big fan of folklore, and wrote many songs based on creatures of fantasy. But it wasn't until Johnny Cash covered one of those songs that his work became famous, with the hit single, I've Been Everywhere, Wolf. Not many people know that Charles Schultz got his start in comics with a strip about a bald kid and his quirky friends that could turn into wolves. That one was called Lycanthropy Nuts. For a time, Louisiana was the top destination for yogis to travel and dispense knowledge. But there are legends of one particularly nasty guy who would travel lonely roads at night and yell obscenities and shame people for their lack of spiritualism. Soon people were afraid to go out after dark because they didn't want to run into the rude guru. One more. The military has a problem every now and then with a disorder that is thankfully pretty rare. It causes highly trained marksmen to develop hair everywhere which hampers their accuracy in clinical cases of sniper trichosis. Them's puns. Hey, thanks for listening to my dive into werewolves. Hope you guys enjoyed, and I, I hope you heard something new in there. A huge thanks once again to Miss Deborah Hyde for taking the time to speak with me and share her insights on such a fun subject. I really appreciate her help and hope to have her back soon for some more fun discussion. In case you might not have heard yet, I'm working with Derek Hayes over at Monsters Among Us to get a documentary off the ground. We're going to shine a light on all the weird happenings going on around Anza Borrego State Park in California. You may recall from this year's Miss Cryptid that a hairy hominid called the Borrego Sandman is out there. And in addition to that, the area is heavy with UFO and paranormal activity. Tons of weird stuff in the skies and tons of great ghost stories from the Wild West. Plus, it's a gorgeous and often overlooked area, at least for... Uh, paranormal research and discussion. I was actually out there in October, and Derek and I shot some footage, which will be in a trailer for Kickstarter soon. It's going to be, and I mean this legitimately, epic. So keep your eyes and ears open. The Kickstarter will launch soon, and then we'll have a limited time to get funded and see if this project will actually happen or not. There's going to be some great rewards you'll get for helping to fund us, and I'll have all that in an announcement soon. This is legit. Wear your rubber pants for a while. <laughs> Make sure to check out blurryphotos.org for links to social media to support the cause on there. And don't forget to check out my other podcast, the trivia show Quiz Quiz Bang Bang, when you get a chance. Search for it on your podcatcher or at quizbangpod.com. I hope everyone's doing well. We still have a ghost stories episode to get to for another extended blurry photober, which I guess now is photimber. So look forward to that. 
And then before you know it, it'll be Krampus knocked and Saturnalia. But for now, and for this episode of Blurry Photos, I have been David Florugaru. Till next time. <laughs>